Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. Today, we're very happy to welcome Joe McNally, who describes himself as a working photographer. Joe has a new book out called The Real Deal, covering his, well, most of his career. Joe is joining us from Connecticut. Thank you for joining us, Joe. Well, thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. So when I got the book, I looked at it and I looked at the first few photos and this is my teenage years. I grew up in Queens, New York. In 1976, I graduated high school, and that's when you got to New York, working for the Daily News. And I'm thinking back, remember those brochures about Fear City back then? Um, you remember how dilapidated everything was? And you were at the Daily News, and we were living the summer of Sam in 1977. Tell us what it was like back then. I ran Jimmy Breslin's copy when he was writing to the son of Sam. His his assistant. Uh, was terrified that Sam was going to show up at the Daily News and yeah. blow people away. You know, I mean, it was it was pretty scary. Uh, but I was so vectored in in my head about the idea of becoming a photographer in New York City that it didn't matter to me. The cockroaches in my apartment, the constant <laughs> diet of of you know calzones and and uh, and Big Macs and. Um, just having no dough whatsoever, but it was, uh, yeah, it was a sweaty mess, but it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. I haven't been back to New York for a long time, but you know, if I think back of what Times Square was like in the seventies, um, when I was a teenager, I was into magic. I used to go to the, to Lou Tannen's down on Broadway and 33rd. I don't know if you know the magic store and you'd see the remnants on Saturday morning in Times Square from the Friday night before. Um, it was it was quite a city, and and looking at just even a simple photo of um, of, su of a subway train on a track with all the graffiti and stuff, and it just brings back so many memories. It the, there is something about documentary photography that's really powerful, like that. Well, that's that is the power of it. You know, it's evocative. It brings you right back to some place you were, uh, a point in time in your life, an era. You know, whether it's it's about people or whether it's about a place. There is nothing, I think, like the power of a still photograph. Yeah. Do, do you remember where you were on the night of July 13, 1977? July 13. Does that ring a bell? Well, that would have been the heat of the summer and the summer of yeah. Sam. Um, and the big blackout. Oh, gosh, yes. That was the blackout. I do yeah. actually remember. I was with a former schoolmate. Her name was Carol. We were not uh, dating but she had also moved to the city and she was fresh at her job and her office had a party. This is, this is a wild night. I'm going to yeah. tell you the, quickly this story. <laughs> her office had a party on the circle line and she asked ah. me to go, not as a date, just for company. Like we were buds, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I went out and we were in the, in the Harbor and we look at the city and it's oscillating in terms of brightness, yeah. it's going brown and then bright. And, and then by the time we pull back in on West 42nd Street of all places, which is where the dock of the Circle Line is, the yeah. city was black. It yeah. was out. And I walked her straight down 42nd Street in the middle of 42nd Street because, you know, 8th Avenue at that time on 42nd uh, or after you crossed 8th and headed towards Times Square, it was crazy. I mean, yeah, porn theaters and drugs. 
everywhere. And of course the air conditioning's out. So all yeah. the, all the folks who lived in those theaters, the raincoat men, the, you know, the gropers, <laughs> you know, they were all out on the street and she was terrified. So I yeah. just hooked arms with her and we walked straight down to the East side. And then we walked all the way up to her apartment. She lives someplace in she's up in Yorktown or, or uh, in the upper East side. Yeah. It was amazing. Uh, yeah. Surreal, surreal. Of course, yeah. I was relaxing and I, you know, I did not have a camera with me. I couldn't get home. And that yeah. was that. That's a shame. Yeah. It was a crazy summer between that son of Sam, um, the Yankees, uh, you know, the, all of that was really crazy. So you went to New York, you wanted to be a photographer, but you went in the back door and you got a job as a copy boy at the daily news, which if I, do they still call it the picture newspaper? Cause that's what they called it back in the day. No, they don't. They took the, uh, there is a stylized four by five camera symbol yeah. on the front page and underneath was New York's picture newspaper. That's all gone. Yeah. So how did you eventually become a photographer? Um, I, I got fired. Oh, that's a good way to get a job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was hoping for a staff position at the Daily News. That never happened. I moved from copy boy into what they call the studio and I became a studio apprentice in the union system. You weren't a man until you went out on the street as a photographer, you were a boy, right. you were a copy boy. And then as an apprentice, you were considered a boy. So, you know, I was captioning and processing, you know, running film through Versamats, this and that doing whatever odd jobs. Uh, and uh, it was photo related. So I was, I had the sense I was getting closer, but then uh, there was a big strike and the paper hit the skids. And after that strike, which was very fortuitous for me because I signed on and became a staff photographer at a little known strike paper called the city news. And that was uh, the photo department was run by Danny Farrell, who was a tremendous mentor to me. And all of a sudden I was, it was very heady for me because I was shooting for this newspaper. I was getting front pages. I was shooting for the UPI. And then I had to go back into the studio and then they said, we are eliminating the jobs in the studio. You have to go back to being a copy boy. And I was like, I'm out of here. So I yeah. hit the streets and I started to string for the New York times, the AP, the UPI, Philadelphia Inquirer. Not much money was changing hands, but if you did enough of those jobs, you could make it. Yeah. What, what kind of equipment did you have back then? Not much. Uh, when I was at the news, uh, my apartment got hit and I lost all my camera gear. Um, the news, the guys in the studio passed the hat and I got 500 bucks and I bought a Leica M4. Oh, okay. 30, 35 millimeter lens, no meter. Okay. Uh, Jimmy yep. McGrath, God, God bless him. He was, he died way too young. Wonderful photographer at the news, close friend. He would order, photographers always got their, you know, request or film request every month, you know, get, you know, cause there's some of them worked remotely. He would always order an extra brick of Triax. Yep. And he'd be like, here kid, take it, you know? Um, <laughs> and uh, that was the way I got filmed. And then, you know, I picked up here and there, you know, I, I bought an old F, you know, and started to work a bit, you know, and that was his really basic you know, my early beginnings were basic gear. I had, I had that little Leica and then I started to plunge back into the Nikon system, which is where I started as a student. Right. Right. So one of the things that I love about the book is not just 
the story of, of how you started, but just the story of adversity during those days that you didn't sort of walk in with a high stature. You were very much on the ground and making mistakes. And it, it sounds like, especially, you know, with, with the, the limited gear, you just had to go out and find whatever you needed to shoot. What was that like in terms of, I don't want to sound too highfalutin, like growing as a photographer, but how much of it was just building craft and just survival because you needed to hit X number of photos per week in order to make sure you could eat that week? It's a process, you know, as you indicate, like anything, you get better as you go, hopefully. Um, I was, uh, as I say, mentored sometimes quite fiercely. Larry DeSantis at the EPI uh, read me the riot act publicly, um, shamefully at in loud octaves in the middle of the EPI <laughs> newsroom. Um, he actually, Larry, actually, I sent in three rolls of film and he was so disappointed that he crushed those rolls into an acetate ball and reassigned another photographer. And so when I came back in to see him, my film was in this crumpled ball on his desk and he stood up and he threw it at me, hit me in the chest with it and told me to get out until I learned how to use a flash. Um, and so it was not your, uh, human resources didn't exist. Let me put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you took your lumps. Um, uh, but thankfully one of the early lessons I learned coming through newspapers and wire services is to move fast, be tenacious and, um, survive. I mean, you know, you did do three or four assignments, uh, a day, you know, and that is a great training ground which sadly is is not all that available to young photographers coming up today. Yeah. Uh, you have a chapter in the book, which is called How's That for Random? And you talk about a particular photo that you caught just just right. And there's a pull quote, a successful random one five hundredth of a second occurring in a sea of other hundreds of seconds that failed so miserably opened the gates to a lifetime of pictures. And there is something about that in photography, that one moment that you can capture that just says what you want to say, that just speaks much more than other photos. Sure. It's, you know, you, you look back on it, you're, you're not aware of it at the time. It's like, yeah, you, you, you hand it in and it's like, okay, here's a picture the picture editor likes it or not. It runs or not, whatever. And then you move on, but upon reflection, and that's, that's a powerful thing about doing a book like this, you realize, man, you know, it could have easily gone the other way. Because you know, yep. I was in I was in school to be a writer. I was thinking I would be a sports writer. Ah, okay. And the the thing is, back then, young people today, young people today, don't remember how tough it was when you only had twenty four or thirty six shots on a roll of film, and it took a couple minutes to to put a new roll in. You couldn't do burst mode, so you really had to develop that reflex to just catch the right moment. Yeah, there's strategies that were regularly deployed back then that are just no longer needed. You know, uh, you know, track and field, for instance, I, you know, I've done a number of Olympics, you know, in film days, you had to, you know, if it was a multi-lap race and you're coming up and you were at, you know, frame 24, 25, do you have enough time as they're going around to coming yeah. to the finish to change a cassette of film? So, or do you live with the remaining 10 or 12 frames that you have? Eh, you know, those are strategies that are no longer really yeah. necessary to, to, uh, to, you know, factor into your, to your thinking, which is all to the good. I mean, digital is amazing and I love it and it's, it's a fantastic thing, but I, I bless the fact that I came through 
um, you know, wet dark rooms, um, basic equipment, and you know, you know, gear that by today's standards are like blacksmith's tools. Yeah. As a photographer, I'm a mere enthusiast. Like Jeff, I write about photography and other things. Um, but I had a brief job in New York uh, working as a messenger for a retouching lab that did cibachromes that they got from fashion photographers. And I was able to watch the work of these retouchers, these manual retouchers on these like two by three foot cibachromes. And it was fascinating to see the craft that people were using back then. And now it's all computerized and it's it's so much different. Not that it's necessarily worse now or better now, but it is different when you see the manual craft and when you learn the manual craft as well. Sure. You know, I, I became a popular guy at the New York Daily News photo studio because nobody there knew how to spot tone prints. Yeah. And, you know, and Danny Farrell came to me and he was like, you know, what a mess, you know, because the negatives were never cared for, really. And he had yeah. this really wonderful photograph that was just pockmarked like crazy with all sorts of damage. And I said, uh, you know, if you want to give me a shot, I'll see if I can, you know, spot tone that for you. And he goes, kid, you got a shot. <laughs> and um, and I did. I recovered that photograph and he won a prize with it, yeah. um, you know, but those skills. Yeah. Um, you know, I have no idea what I was doing to my insides because you'd be there on the, the spot tone brush and you'd be dabbing it on your tongue <laughs> and dabbing yeah. it in the, in the ink and dabbing it yeah. on your tongue, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, but yeah, those kinds, of, those kinds of legends and lore of growing up with a camera in New York, you know, they stick to your ribs. They're, they're yeah. formative. Yeah. And particularly at that time when, when you were able to see so much, you, you do a lot of sports photography. Um that, that it, I've always felt that sports photographers are sports photographers and they don't do other kinds of photography. Yet we can see on your wall all the National Geographic covers you've done. You seem to have a, quite a range of genres. I've, I've tried to be versatile. To me, it was nothing and uh, no particular brilliance or anything like that. It was a question of survival. You know, if I assignment came in, can I do that? Yeah. Can I use a flash? Yeah. Can I shoot a ball game? Yeah. Can I, you know, I don't let me be clear. I don't shoot sports the way real sports photographers shoot. I mean, guys like Al Bello or Donald Morale and people like that. I mean, those guys are on another planet. They're so, they're so excellent. You know, I would consider myself a dabbler in sports photography. A lot of the work I did for sports illustrated was controlled work, you know, where you would set up a scene and then yeah. have action occur under strobe lit conditions for more of an illustrative photograph, right. that type of thing. But yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, versatility, again, is an oft overlooked uh, component of survival as a photographer. One of the things that strikes me about the book, especially related to the sports, is a lot of the side work you did, like when you were at the Olympics and you went to the, the favelas in Rio and having a fixer, actually a pair of fixers in that story, and just getting to a lot of different areas to get the flavor of the situation or the scene, were those assignments just like, hey, Joe, we need you to go get the flavor of this city, go? Or how much of that was also editorial direction saying, we would really like you to go shoot some of the people who live in this area? What's that balance between sort of openness and and direct assignment? Good, good question. Um, the flavor of Rio, the specific thing that you mentioned there, was an idea that I conjured prior to the Olympics with 
the gentleman who was the photo editor at Sports Illustrated and brought me on board for the Rio games, who right before the Rio games got fired. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, welcome to <laughs> magazines. Um, and I still had a credential and they said, well, you know, you might as well go. And so I started doing portraiture and work in and around Rio and kind of sort of what happened, I think, was that, you know, editors in New York were like, you know, looking at some of this stuff and are like, this isn't Michael Phelps, you know, send him, <laughs> you know. And so I went back into the games and I just started I, I let that aspect of it go. And I went went back into the games and I started shooting, you know, the the events and and being assigned at that point. Like you, you've got wrestling today. You've got X today, et cetera. So but I do. um I'm always curious at what's going on off stage, if you will. Sporting events are wonderful. And, you know, there's no comparing at being there at the finish line when Usain Bolt wins or something like that. But at the same time, I'm much more interested in the obsessions that underlie sports and what drives a human being to work so hard to excel at certain things, you know. And so I've done a lot of work with athletes over time, Olympic athletes over time, that are again off stage. They're they're not at the arena. They are, you know, at their workouts or in private moments or something illustrative about their physique. Or in '96, I took the clothes off the Olympic team. Back then, it was very scandalous for Life magazine, and you know, I was on Good Morning America and the Today Show. Like, oh my God, they're all naked. You know, now of course athletes walk in naked. I mean, you know, the, that's not that big a deal. But back then. I was interested in not only these beautiful physiques, but also how the human body responded to a certain sport. Like Cliff Bayer, the American fencer, I photographed him flexing uh, his uh, foil over his head. I shot him from the back and his right arm, his fencing arm is literally twice the size of his left arm. You know, those things happen. I'm looking at, at one photo that I find really interesting. You, you were assigned to um, do a photo for People magazine, is it? I'm trying to – let me just make sure. The Joyce Carol Oates, was that People? Uh, actually, that was for a magazine that ended up never getting published. It was for a magazine pilot called Quality Magazine. That okay. T- Time Inc. back in the day had kind of a magazine lab where they would try things. Yeah. So you were assigned to take a photo of Joyce Carol Oates, who's a novelist, who you don't think as a luxury type person. And apparently she was driving a Ferrari and you were taking a picture of her afterwards. It just seems so incongruous, the picture of her relatively thin with those big glasses, sitting with that Ferrari. And the the chapter you talk about using smoke for photography, particularly fashion photography. How does it feel when you have something incongruous like that, which, if anything, is what a photographer is always looking for, isn't it? Yeah, incongruous is great as far as I'm concerned. Juxtaposition, wonderful. What's what's a ballerina doing on the edge of a cliff? Um, you know, <laughs> you're 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 hoping for that for that head tilt, that that double take. You know, where somebody yeah. goes like, "There's a category on my website um, that is just odd moments." You know, things mm-hmm. that are strange, and yeah. I've always enjoyed that sort of visual juxtaposition because it's a piece of my imagination. Yeah. Uh, Another thing in the book is you have a, this is both a retrospective of your your career and a how-to book. Um, There are chapters I just mentioned about smoke and light and and all of that. 
as you were developing as a photographer, would you take a certain amount of time to master a technique, like to master the flash and then to master multiple flashes and all of that, um, the smoke thing? Is this something that you would work on to get right or that just developed organically over the years? I think it's a process of developing, you know, having the confidence to risk and then saying, this should work <laughs> and going into the field and trying it. You know, my, my whole career, I think the operative philosophy is the Lord looks after a fool, um, you know, and you have to have a tremendous amount of almost childlike enthusiasm and confidence and also the ability to bounce back if things don't work out, which when you attempt or risk, there are times things don't work out. And yeah. you can, you know, the results can be like, you can lose a client, you know, you can, uh, you can be un, go unpaid for a job. You can raise the hackles and ire of people who thought they were going to get something and didn't get what they were thinking. Yeah. There, there's another chapter in the book, and I'm getting down to the end, which is called Photography to Write with Light, but First Write on Paper. And you're talking about all of the deliverables that you get when someone uh, commissions you to do something. But what I find really fascinating is you were doing this shot in, like, it looks like a museum with like dozens of lights and, and a, a huge crew. And how much time does it take to actually set up what's going to be a half a dozen photos when you're doing a shoot like that? Yeah, that was a, a all week on location, and of course a whole week a, for that. Yeah, yes, um, and then prior to that, of course, a lots of pre production. We're really blessed here at the studio. My studio manager has been with me for thirty years, roughly, and she's a just a absolutely amazing producer. And she can she's done miracles, you know, finding me places and this and that. So the production company that we were working for, the ad agency, was in Germany. They found the location. They made the liaison for the location. And then all the gear and everything they made the arrangements for. We produced on our end, you know, the arrangements for styling and talent, et cetera. So everything came together on location. And it was several days to put that together, the physical reality of the picture. Because it, it almost looks like a, like a movie shoot, the photos in the book. It was probably very close to and the crew was 30 to 40 people. Um, it was very expensive. Wow. I had uh, cranes outside. I had Profoto 2400 watt second units, um, you know, multiples of them. I forget how many on, on crane outside because we could only work at night when the museum was closed. So we worked from, yeah. say, eight o'clock to about six the next morning. So I had to light the upper alcove through a window. And that required a tremendous amount of light and also the ability to trigger those lights, which are out on a crane in the street. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to have a fair chunk of confidence at that point to like, OK, because you're the eye of the storm. Clients there, video crew is BTSing. You're on microphone all week long. Yeah. You're, pick, you're picking the talent. You're making style decisions. You're making the lighting decisions. You're, making, you're spiking the cameras like, here we go. This is it. This is where we this is where we shoot the photograph, you know. So, yeah, a lot of decisions come down on your head at that point and you have to hang in there. How often do you do shoots that complex? Not as often as I used to. I mean, budgets yeah. and magazines, you know, we all know yeah, that story. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, and and the the thrust, if you will, of the industry with gear and the technology is um, is 
all towards smaller, lighter, faster. Yeah. Digital technology is amazing. And deliverables are like, boom, you can, you know, you're, you're, you know, um, you're sending things out, you know, as you're shooting them, you're, uh, the process is so accelerated, pretty amazing. So yeah, that, that is, I I don't want to say that big production work is a thing of the past. It still happens at the upper echelons of the ad agencies and cetera. Fashion. Yeah. A lot of stuff though is done CG. There's a tremendous amount of CG going on. Uh, the physical reality of doing big production work when I was growing up shooting for, you know, Sports Illustrated or National Geographic or Life was that you you had to physically work it out, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes that would take days. Okay. So one other project that is totally different is Faces of Ground Zero. You did a number of photos of uh was it emergency workers, uh, first responders and all that uh, after 9-11? And it, Wikipedia tells me that you did this with something called MobiC, the world's largest one-of-a-kind instant camera, and you made nine-foot-by-four-foot framed images. How how big is a camera that makes nine-by-four-feet, 36-square-foot images? The camera was the personal invention of Dr. Land himself at the Polaroid. Yeah. Um, corporation and he went to the engineers and he said let's make one as big as we think we can possibly make it and they did and there was only one it's been disassembled now i'm not even sure where it is but it was sometimes called the 40 by 80 because that would be the actual paper size right so 40 inch by 80 inch yeah it would come off the rolls at the polaroid company in 40 inch widths and so it's a it was a life-size camera vertically oriented so when a firefighter or a cop or uh, an EMT person would step in front of it, if they were, you know, five foot six, they were five foot six in the picture. Yeah. So uh, they were so life, it was size. life size. Yeah. And, and given the grainless nature of Polaroid and the kind of beautiful pigment of it, it yeah. really has a kinship with the real person. You know, yeah. it's an emotional and confronting them is a pretty emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been an interesting project. Okay, Joe, thank you very much. Um, I'll remind our listeners, the book is called The Real Deal uh, by Joe McNally at Rocky Nook. I believe we have a couple of copies to give away. So if you have uh, subscribed to our newsletter on photoactive.co, you are automatically entered into the draw. The draw being Jeff asking Siri to pick a couple of random numbers. You can order Joe's book now at rockynook.com. We'll also have a link in the show notes. Use the code JOE22, J-O-E-2-2, to get 40% off the book when ordering from Rocky Nook. So, Joe, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you guys for having me. It was a fun chat, and I appreciate it very much. Okay, Jeff, time for our snapshots. What have you got? My snapshot is yet another Apple thing that I bought recently and found to be surprisingly useful. So I have an iPad Pro, and after a lot of hemming and hawing, I finally bought a keyboard for it. I bought the Magic Keyboard, the one that is suspended and is magnetic and has really good keys and a trackpad. I've been on the fence about this because I really use my laptop most of all, but I found myself wanting to type in other situations, sitting out on my deck, for example, and I don't want to bring my whole computer out. It's not inexpensive. It's about $300, and I managed to knock that down by having some store credit and etc., but it's really well-made, responsive, and I found it to be really helpful. Yeah. I have one of those keyboards as well for my 11-inch iPad Pro. I don't use it a lot, but I do like it. Uh, I think 
It's an interesting way to work with a, an iPad. Yes, definitely. Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, I have a snapshot that I'm not going to buy, but I want to talk about because it's got some interesting new features. I'm sure you saw that Leica um, just released the new M11 camera. And it's it's 7,500 pounds, $9,000, whatever. I'm not buying it. I've already got one like it. That's enough. But there are some interesting features that I wanted to talk about, and I'm hoping that these are going to trickle down into other cameras. It has a 60 megapixel sensor, but you have three options for raw resolution. You can shoot photos in 60 megapixels, 36 megapixels, or 18 megapixels. Now, this uses something called pixel binning, which kind of combines pixels. So it's using the whole sensor. It's not cropping. And why would you want to do this? You think, well, I've got 60 megapixels. Why would I want to use less? Well, if you want to shoot in burst mode, you're limited uh, in the number of frames you can shoot per second by the size of the files. So if you want to shoot a lot in burst mode, you can use smaller files that are still going to be even the 18 megapixel is going to have really good resolution. Um, you can do this in JPEG and RAW. I, I'm not sure if you have different options for JPEG and RAW, but I think you actually might. The second thing that made me wonder, why has no camera that I know of ever done this before? It's got 64 gigabytes of internal flash memory. Now, we're used to having this on phones, and no one does it on cameras, um, obviously, because you want to be able to take the photos out of the camera. And in order to do so, it's got a USB-C jack so you can connect it to another device. But even though we have a lot of cameras that already come with USB connections, we don't have that. So that means you can shoot on this camera without having an SD card, or you can use the SD card as a backup, or you can put your RAW on one, JPEGs on the other, or you can shoot on the internal, then on the SD card when the internal is full. You have a lot of options with it. Uh, finally, it has, no, 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 what else does it have? Oh, yeah. Now, it also has something called multi-field light metering, which means that it's actually got a live view all the time. So it's kind of like a mirrorless camera, even though you shoot it as a rangefinder. And Leica has, for a while, they've had what they call the Visoflex eyepiece that sticks onto the hot shoe. And this one has a new Visoflex or Visoflex that's a little bit bigger. And so you can actually use this as a mirrorless. Now, I wouldn't buy a Leica M camera, which is a rainfinder, to use as a mirrorless, but there might be situations where you might want to. So I, I find these features really interesting. And again, not going to buy it, but I'd really like to see more cameras that come with that internal memory at a minimum. Uh, this also comes with a a uh, made-for-Apple-whatever cable, the Apple certified cable, USB-C to Lightning. So you can connect it to an iPhone or if you have an older iPad with Lightning, because the new ones have USB-C, you can use this cable and you can automatically transfer files to the Leica Photos app. I don't know yet if you can transfer them to Lightroom or anything else. And I'm not sure if a USB-C to USB-C allows you to do the same on an iPad Pro. Uh, I've read some conflicting ideas. Anyway, this is the new Leica M11. Um, if you got 9,000 bucks to spare, go for it. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's Photoactive Cast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.